Philippians 1, 18 through 26. These are God's words. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. These are God's words. You may be seated. As we mentioned last week, this is a start of, or this is a sermon series that we're calling DNA because it is a sermon series that is speaking to the values and the mission of this church, City Light Church. And so last week we looked into the mission of this church. We exist to shine the light of Christ in our city through, through the transformed lives of his people. And to unpack that mission, we dove into Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This week, we want to turn our attention and our focus to our values. Now, normally on a weekend like this kind of weekend, MLK birthday weekend, it would be fitting for us to highlight one of the values that really speak to our multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial nature. So universal unity, resilient realness, something along those lines to speak to our identity as a multi-ethnic, multicultural church. But then this weekend happened, yesterday happened. And so in some ways, my focus has completely shifted over what I thought I was going to do. I still want to talk about the value of Christ-centeredness, but I'm going to talk about it from a different angle this morning, an angle that I think might be suited for what we are experiencing in our church family. We say, simply put, that Christ-centeredness means at City Light Church aiming to do everything that reflects to the world that Christ is King. That's what we mean by Christ-centeredness. And so, that is being tested this morning. That's being tested in one of our dearly beloved brothers and sisters' homes. And that is being tested in our own hearts this morning, aiming to do everything in a way that reflects that Jesus Christ is King of all and Lord of all. That's what Christ-centeredness means for this church. But as I mentioned earlier, in um, my greeting to you guys over the weekend, our dear sister has taken a 
significant term. She's been battling, she's been battling, she's been battling. And now she's taking a turn for the worse, and we are left to wonder how long she has in this life with us. And as I prayed with her um, on last night, I called out this scripture just by habit. Philippians chapter 1, the one that we just read. Because there are a few places in the Bible where Christ is centered more than he is here in Philippians chapter 1. There are a few places in Scripture where we are really asked to place our faith on trial in such a profound way and ask ourselves, what do we actually believe? What do we really believe? Is our life, is our hope, is our pursuit really and truly Christ-centered, centered on Jesus? Or is it just a cliche that, that we use, you know, to, to mean that we're going to say Jesus a lot? We're going to say Jesus a lot in our preaching. We're going to say Jesus a lot in our singing. We're going to say Jesus a lot in our praying. Does it mean that or does it mean something a little bit more significant? Does this value mean for us that in everything, Christ is center and preeminent? Not only in our success and our climbs up ladders, but in our suffering and in our sickness and even possibly in our death. And this is where my heart is this morning as I reflect on my sister and as I reflect on my God. I want to begin diving into this text by digging into the latter part of verse 18. It says very simply, yes, and I will rejoice. Before that last phrase in verse 18, we hear these words right before it. Look, look right before that. In that I rejoice. So in that I rejoice and then follows, yes, and I will rejoice. And the Greek is probably a little more accurate to just simply say, in that I will rejoice, but and I will rejoice. That's the way it's constructed. This real weird kind of double conjunction thing is going on. In other words, there is something that I'm currently rejoicing in. In that I will rejoice, and there is something I will one day rejoice in, but and I will rejoice. So in this phrase, Paul is tying together two different experiences that is leading him to joy and will lead him to joy in his life, in his ministry, and both of them are coming from very strange places to find joy. Unless Paul's joy is rooted in something far different than what we would consider normal. And so where's the first experience of joy that Paul seems to possess? Again, it's in verse 18, actually going back all the way to verse 12, and it says this. Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition." Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, Paul is in prison, that we know. But in this, he rejoices. 
And so the question is why? And the answer is because the gospel is advancing while he is in prison. So the next question is, how is it advancing while he's in prison? Well, one reason is, or one way that it's advancing is people are getting the chance to hear that the reason Paul is in prison is because of Jesus. So Jesus' name is being heard more and more and more as people discuss this man who is in prison on his account. But then another reason is that fellow saints are growing more and more confident as they see Paul suffer well for the faith. They are growing bolder in sharing their faith, not worrying so much about the consequences because they see Paul is in prison not fearing the consequences. And they say, well, Paul can do this and certainly we can. And so they're getting out. Gaining, gaining more courage, gaining more boldness, and going out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. But then there's another thing that's happening. Some folks are even out here preaching Christ only because they see the attention that Paul gets from preaching it. And they are jealous and envious at the attention Some may be even angry at the attention. So now they are preaching a bolder Christ, hoping that it will raise their platform and even hurt Paul a little bit in the process. You know, sometimes Jesus is seasonal, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's popular in vogue to preach a bolder gospel. So everybody starts preaching that bolder gospel because it's drawing attention to. In this, Paul says, I'm rejoicing. Even in people preaching Christ to hurt me, I'm rejoicing. How is Paul rejoicing? Why is Paul rejoicing? Verse 18 again, it says, what then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Doesn't matter what way Christ is proclaimed, Paul is saying. Is Christ being proclaimed? Is he being proclaimed more due to people trying to hurt me and take the spotlight that was on me? Doesn't matter, is he being proclaimed? Is Christ being proclaimed more due to me being in prison and the public asking more questions about Jesus? Doesn't matter. Is he being proclaimed? Is Christ being proclaimed more due to me being in prison and giving courage to some of my fellow brothers and sisters who were once fearful to share? Doesn't matter. Is he being proclaimed? Paul is saying it doesn't matter how it is impacting me because Christ is being proclaimed. And my life is found in him. How can Paul experience joy in the midst of this? How can Paul experience, why can Paul experience joy in the midst of this? It's because his ministry, his pursuits, his life is all centered in Christ, being magnified and being glorified. You see, when the glory of Christ is where your joy is centered, you can experience joy even in the most dire of personal circumstances. Paul's question is not in this text, how could this happen to me? But rather, how can Christ be magnified and glorified 
in the midst of what's happening to me. Why? Because Christ is center and Christ is preeminent. You know, um, I've, I've started a, or we've started, myself, my, my wife, my oldest BJ, my youngest Elijah, we've started um, new traditions. Many thanks to my dear friend Matt Clark in our home. We play a lot of board games these days. Elijah is a big fan of board games. Mom, Dad, BJ, we're trying to, we're trying to come along. We're trying to. And so Elijah got this big board game for Christmas, and it is extensive. It's exhaustive. It has all sorts of pieces. You have, it took an hour just to go through the tutorial, just to learn how to play the game. So you know where this is going. And it's all about, you know, it's a lengthy board game, but it's a game of strategy where you take turns moving across the, this big map and you're bartering and you're trading with other people and you're setting up territories and you're building up your territories, you're putting resources on territories, and you're even attacking other players to try to capture their territories and their resources. Maybe you're trying to capture their, their metal or their food or all these different, their wood, so that you can build more of your territories up, all this crazy stuff. It's a very long game. And because we were all trying to play nice with one another, nobody, nobody really attacked each other's territories early on. Now, we, were trying, we were all trying to learn and trying to be friendly for the first couple of hours that we played. Again, it's a very long board game. So long, in fact, that we had to take a pause. We said, like, oh, man, you know, let's pick this up tomorrow. So we stopped where the, we left the board as it was, and we said, okay, we'll come back tomorrow, and we'll try to pick this up. But... Here's where things gets really, get really interesting. Elijah comes up to me after the first night. And he says, Dad, I think I'm going to have to attack you. <laughs> now, bear in mind, he, he wasn't overwhelmingly better armed or better resourced than me. However, as he surveyed the current position of all the players... He recognized that his dad was positioning himself to possibly win the game. And so he decided to make this play because he saw that he had a pathway to victory. And since victory was the ultimate goal, he was willing to sacrifice every other pursuit on the board, every other task on the board, all the stacking of goods. Nah. He was saying, I, in order to win, I'm going to have to put all this aside and I'm going to have to go attack my dad and get his resources. You see, when the one goal that surpasses every other goal is still within reach and attainable, you don't mind sacrificing the other goals and the other tasks that surround that one goal. You don't mind sacrificing the other pursuits to achieve that one goal. And in the midst of losing the other goals, the other resources that come from completing the other task, you can still celebrate with joy because you know that even the losses are contributing to the most important goal. Paul says, what? People are talking about me? What? I'm in prison? What? People hate me? None of that matters. Is Christ being proclaimed? Yes, Paul, that's my ultimate goal. So I will risk all the other things in order to see Christ glorified. Do you see where I'm going, saints? 
This is Paul. That's his nature. And this, is, and this can be us when you step back from everything and you establish that there is nothing more important in my life than Jesus exalted, Jesus glorified, Jesus magnified. That's the most important thing in my life. So that's Paul's first experience with joy. From prison, enemies preaching Jesus to try and hurt me, take what little influence I have, and, and you know what? I don't care. I rejoice because the most important pursuit in my life is happening, and that's Christ is being proclaimed and his glory is spreading around the world. You know, as I think about my dear sister this morning, one of the stories of her struggles includes this kind of parallel with Paul. As she described her battle through, the, through these last months and years with cancer and her physical bouts with the pain in her body and the mental bouts that she's had with despair. She also always discussed the potential for God to be glorified in her by allowing the Spirit to enable her to point people back to Jesus even through her suffering. And that's exactly what she did consistently and often, time and time again. Even today as we prepare to visit her and sing songs of worship, outside of her home. We are gathering there because she desires to worship Jesus. And so that's why we're gathering to worship with her. This is what it means to center Christ. Let's talk about Paul's second experience of joy. Remember, he says, and in that, I rejoiced. That was what we just talked about. Now, yes, and I will rejoice, or but, and I will rejoice. So Paul is rejoicing despite hardship, despite loss of freedom, despite his enemies' pursuit of him. Why? Because Christ is still being proclaimed, magnified, and glorified. But Paul not only says he is rejoicing, Paul says he will rejoice. And so where is this second experience of joy going to come from? Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or whether by death. Paul says, I am rejoicing, but I will rejoice. And why will he rejoice? Because through the prayers of the saints and the help of the Spirit, Paul will eventually see deliverance from his plight. Paul's joy is not only tied to the Spirit of God, notice that, but it's tied to the people of God who are praying for the Spirit's help in Paul's life. So Paul not only carries joy uh, because of the Spirit at work, but he carries confidence because somebody is praying for him. And the Lord is listening and thus sustaining Paul by his spirit. You know, you too can carry a similar confidence in your own deliverance. Because God is listening to the prayers of his children who are praying for you. And empowering you by the spirit in response to those prayers. You know, I still recall the elders in my life reminding us to rejoice that even when we were lost in our sins, far from God and provoking his wrath, somebody was out there praying for us, praying for our deliverance, praying for our salvation, praying for our redemption, praying for our keeping and our sustaining. Many of us can say with Paul, I know this will turn out for my deliverance because somebody's been praying for me and God by his spirit has enabled me. 
Let this also be a reminder to each of you to not stop praying or to, not, to never stop praying, rather, for one another. Because God hears your prayers and God responds to your prayers. Not just the prayers that you're praying over your life, but the prayers you're praying for the lives of others. Paul also says in this text that he will rejoice because he will not be at all ashamed, but instead Christ Jesus will be honored in me. His faith will be sustained through suffering and through hardship and through imprisonment and through threat because the prayers of the saints and the sustaining power of the Spirit is at work. Recall, it was Paul who said, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so instead of shame that comes with drifting from Christ at the sound or the sign of threat, Paul says instead he is confident that he will not be put to shame and that he will honor Jesus in his body and with his life. Now, up to this point, you might be convinced that this deliverance that Paul is talking about has in mind simply deliverance from prison. That's what you might think up to this point. There are some words, in fact, in this passage that can easily lead us there. For example, look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He says, hey, I'm very confident that I'm not going to die in this prison, in fact, this time. And looking back at history, he doesn't. This time. Most scholars believe that Paul was actually in prison twice. The first imprisonment is where we get all these letters from. Philemon, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, all were written during this time in prison that we're reading about right now. But then he's released, which he says, I'm confident this is going to happen. In Philippians 1. And then he goes after he's released and he goes back into the mission field doing missionary work for a few more years until he's arrested again. And then in his second imprisonment, he's eventually martyred. He dies, he's killed. So this prison history for Paul should give you a little bit of an indicator that Paul's joy is rooted in a place that runs a little deeper than just being released from a cell because he ends, back, he ends up back in that cell just a couple of years later and he ends up dying. And if it was only tied, if deliverance was only tied to the cell, then his joy and his hope would have been absolutely shipwrecked only a couple of years later. But that's not what happens. And I believe it's because Paul's deliverance that he is highlighting is running a little deeper. And this is where I want you to see that, verse 20. Let's read it again. It says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, listen, whether by life or by death. Paul gives us the most important clue to what he has in mind here with deliverance. I will rejoice because I will be delivered. I will not bring shame to the name of Christ, but rather I will honor his name, and that will happen whether I live or whether I die. See, life and death will not deter Paul's ultimate deliverance because for Paul, deliverance is not just what the Lord does in this life, 
Deliverance is what the Lord is doing in terms of eternity. Let me share something really important to you guys. If you only see deliverance through the lens of what happens in this life, then you have shortchanged the life that is to come. If you only see deliverance in terms of, man, I got, I, I'm going to be delivered from this situation, this financial circumstance, this pain, this incident, this relationship, and that's the extent by which you see deliverance, then you have shortchanged the life to come and the deliverance that God is bringing you that leads to that life. Let me share something. Life, if it's really long here, could be about 100 years. But your next life is 100 years times infinity. Life, is, if, if it's really good here, will eventually lead to you losing the ones you love to, to death. If it's really good, if it's really good here, you're going to lose the ones that you love to death. Or you're going to leave those you love behind to mourn your death. If it's really good, it's going to also include battles with your own sin. It's going to include battles with suffering. It's going to include battles with grief. It's going to include battles with injustice. It's going to include battles with greed. And sometimes that's going to be outside of you, and then sometimes that's going to be a lot of stuff working inside of you. And that is the maximum. That is the maximum you can get in this life. That's if your life is really good and really long. That's what you'll get. Which is why Paul is not simply reaching for deliverance from the cell that he is in. He is holding a confidence that ultimately God has prepared for him a deliverance from a life in a fallen and fleeting world. What are you preparing for? What are you preparing for? Is your hope in God's ability to deliver you from your current job, your current illness, your current financial situation, saints of God, there is nothing wrong with praying those prayers. But what I'm asking you to do is to expand your horizons because there is a greater deliverance set aside for you that will free you to rejoice and walk in joy even if your deliverance from all of those other circumstances never comes. Where does Paul's confidence come from that he will rejoice? Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. What's interesting about this, the way this, this phrase is constructed, is that there actually is no verb in the Greek. There is no is. For to me, to live is, there's no is there. And to die is, there's no is there. It just simply says, for to me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. What does it mean for us to be Christ-centered? For us, for us to be centered in on Jesus, it, 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 what it means is that it extends beyond making sure that we say, pray, and sing the name Jesus a lot. We want to do that, but we want to move beyond that to something deeper. We want our lives to reflect to the world that Jesus Christ is king. Other words, we want to say to live Christ, to die, gain. Paul's life, in other words, is so 
embedded and interwoven in the life of Christ that for Paul, living itself is only a pursuit to glorify Jesus. That's what it is. That's the whole sum of it. It is a selfless and daily desire to make Jesus known. It is not a pursuit of the most comfortable circumstances. It's not a pursuit of the wealthiest life. It's not even a, even a pursuit of the most popular life. It is a pursuit to make Jesus known. Notice what Paul says about continuing on with life here in verse 22. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24 but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says, if I am to remain here in this world, it is only for this reason, to continue on with you, making Jesus known. That's why he's convinced that he's staying. He's not convinced that he's staying because of the fear that he has on what, uh, because of the fear that he carries on what's on the other side of this. He's not convinced that he's staying because he has a bucket list that he hasn't completed yet. There's nothing wrong with a bucket list, but that isn't a compelling and exciting enough reason for Paul to stay here. Paul says to live Christ. In other words, if I am to have life in my body, then it is simply to be used to make Jesus known with this body and with this life. Now, Paul is not perfect in this pursuit because in just a few chapters over in chapter 3, we get Paul saying in verse 11 that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the sum total of life for Paul to live seeking to know Christ and to reach the resurrection, to make his knowledge and resurrection his own as Jesus has made him his own. This is life to Paul, to live Christ. But it's not just for Paul. Because after he says that in chapter 3, verses 12 or 11 through 14, he says this in 15 of chapter 3. Let those of us who are mature... Think this way. And if anything, if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, Paul says, this should be the posture of all the saints who are maturing in the faith. This is what we've been called to walk in. Paul says our prayer should be, if we're not walking in that, Lord, reveal that to me, <laughs> right? And some of y'all are praying that right now, Lord. <laughs> Reveal that to me because I'm not sure, not sure if I'm ready for all that. So, so reveal that. Make that plain. And Paul says, yes, yes, you should pray that prayer. The type of thinking that says, simply put, to live Christ. That's what I'm here for. And lastly, to die, gain. Let's look, let's look at this lastly. To die, gain. 
Remember, Paul is not nearly as concerned about deliverance in this life as he is deliverance in the next life. And here's the reason why. Because for Paul, the life after this life is in fact sweeter than this life. Because that life is with Jesus. He says, I'm waiting for the other life because that life is better. Literally says it, better than this one. Chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, he says this in that same passage where he talks about pressing towards the mark. He says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so this is what Paul is on. This is what he's waiting on. This, was, this is what he's looking forward to. The transformation of our lowly bodies in this lowly fallen life to a glorious body in a glorious eternal life. Paul even goes as far as to say, hey guys, this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Don't get too comfortable here. It's for this reason that Paul finds himself toiling literally about what he wants more. He is wrestling with this and he is fighting this. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor to me or for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. What two? Paul continues, my desire is to depart and to be with Jesus. For that is far better. Paul is toiling between Staying here and leaving. Because he says, to leave is way better than this. I can't wait till he calls me. What does it mean to be with Jesus? Does it mean immediate bodiless fellowship with Christ while we wait for the resurrection of our bodies? Does it mean soul sleep? The truth is we don't know. This has been a discussion for 2,000 years, debates for 2,000 years. This is what even one theologian says. He says, what the after-death experience of being with Christ actually entails is the subject of two millennia of theological reflection. He says, is this after-death experience a conscious, personal fellowship with Christ in a bodiless, intermediate state between death and the future resurrection of the body? Or is this after-death experience an unconscious soul sleep with Christ until the awakening and bodily resurrection at the return of Christ? Or does this after-death experience lead instantaneously to the resurrection of the body and the transcendent eternal realm, even though the resurrection of the dead is still future in some sort of terms? These and many related questions have been extensively debated in the long history of the interpretation of this simple phrase, to depart and be with Christ. We'll be trying to figure that out forever. But here's what we do know. Paul determines that his absence here will somehow lead him to processing presence with Christ. And it will be sweeter than anything this world can ever offer us. It's so sweet that Paul says the only thing that's holding me here is that I believe God wants me here to continue to do this work that I'm doing with y'all. But other than that, I'm ready to go whenever he calls me. 
Saints of God, is this your heart? Have you enlarged your horizon of deliverance wide enough to see what awaits you on the other side in eternity? Have you enlarged your horizon wide enough so that you can say, listen, man, I might, I might get a good life here, but if it doesn't happen, man, I got a better one coming. I might, I might make a little money while I'm here. I might enjoy years of good health. I might enjoy nothing but great relationships. But if I do not for some reason, I got a better one coming. And that's where my hope and my, that's where my hope and my pursuit is. To live as much as I can while I'm here, to live Christ. And to await my death so that when I die, I actually gain. I don't lose. I gain. This is what it means to be Christ-centered. My sister is living out the example of Christ-centeredness. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how much longer she has on this earth. Should she, by God's miraculous grace, be healed and live another 30 years and outlive me? I'll rejoice when I close my eyes and go into glory. But should she only have a few days left, I will grieve her death because I'll miss her, because I love her. And I'll mourn with my brother, but I will not pity her. Because the moment that she leaves, she gains more than I have. And so I don't have to pity her. I can celebrate if the Lord decides to take her. I can celebrate with her, even through tears, even through mourning, even through grief. Because to live is Christ and to die, gain. Let's pray.